Um, Isaiah 53 is quite possibly, I think, uh, the greatest chapter in the entire, maybe Bible, for sure, Old Testament. Uh, to this day, there is nothing quite as amazing and as stunning as this passage, um, starting in chapter 52 and verse 13, all the way through 53, verse 12. Um, if you were to read it aloud, as we did, you would almost think this has to be written by like Matthew, like in the Gospel of Matthew or Mark or John. You read it, and it, this just sounds like this is in the New Testament, uh, but it's actually not. I think even the New Testament doesn't have as paralleled as a description as Jesus' life and death as this is. I think this has more detail than even the gospel accounts do. Um, in the fourth century, a man named Jerome wrote this about the book of, about this passage. He said this, quote, Isaiah should really be called an evangelist rather than a prophet because he describes the mysteries of Christ and the church so clearly. In fact, if, in case you didn't know, Isaiah 53 was written about 700 years before Jesus came onto the scene. It is just simply stunning to read this. Jewish people today, however, interpret this passage quite differently. They believe maybe it talks about King David. Um, many think it has to do with uh, different uh, people in Israel suffering for other Israelites, right? The servants are Israel, suffering for Israel. And some think it is about the Messiah, but he just hasn't come yet. It's actually called uh, the forbidden chapter. Um, in Jewish synagogues today, just like how we have scripture read out loud, uh, they do the similar thing. When they get to Isaiah, they go from chapter 52 all the way to verse 12, and then they skip to Isaiah 54. This is the forbidden chapter. They do not read it. It is hands off. Don't talk about it. Don't read it. Okay? There's actually a video you, you can look up on YouTube. I encourage it. Uh, just type in Isaiah 53, the forbidden chapter. And there's these men in Israel who are uh, Christians, who are Jewish converts, and they go to Jewish people and have them read this passage, all of them for the first time. They never heard it, and these are grown men. And they ask, who do you think this is? I encourage you to look it up. It's got about 5 million views, not hard to find. It is called the Forbidden Chapter for a reason. However, reading this chapter, it is none other than Jesus Christ. How much more clear could it be? Uh, in this passage, we see... All of Jesus' life, Jesus himself in Luke 24 says, or he interprets all the scriptures to the disciples after he rose from the dead, starting from Moses and all the prophets. I happen to think that Jesus went here probably rather quickly. Jesus himself quotes this passage in Luke 22, saying that this is about him. This passage is also quoted in Matthew chapter 8, John chapter 12, Acts chapter 8, Romans chapter 10 and 15, 1 Peter, 22, or 1 Peter 2 verse 22, are all directly quoting this saying, this is the Christ, this is Jesus. This portion of scripture has been called many great names. It's been called the gospel according to Isaiah, the fifth gospel, the chapter of Calvary, the Mount Everest of the Old Testament, a photograph of the cross. Augustine said, this is not prophecy, this is the gospel. Martin Luther said, every Christian should be able to repeat this and memorize it by heart. What a challenge to think about. So, and so in this passage, we're going to spend the next three weeks digging into it to see the glory of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ 700 years before it actually comes about. And in doing so, uh, we're going to be stunned, I think. Uh, if you notice, the sermon has, is called the humiliation of Christ, not humiliated as in, oh no, I got a wedgie at school. I'm so embarrassed. It's not what humiliation means. 
Humiliation means Jesus humbled himself. How low did Jesus Christ go? That's what we're going to talk about today. So get your Bibles. We're going to start in chapter 52, verse 13. And we're going to look at the mission of Christ. This is what he came to do. Look at uh, chapter 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. So this servant of Yahweh of the Lord will act wisely. Uh, he will be obedient, right? Consider the contrast of the book of Isaiah. We hear of another servant who is Israel. Uh, like Isaiah 44 said, it's Israel. This is a different servant. It's very clear this is somebody else. Um, and unlike Israel, who was unwise, who was foolish, who was sinful, this servant will not be like Israel. He will not be foolish. He will actually be wise. Uh, they were foolish by running headlong into sin. They copied the surrounding nations, adopted their customs, mixed, mixed religious ideas, followed foreign gods. Right? We know that. But this servant in Isaiah 52 and 53 is the same one in chapter 42, 49, and 50. He will not be like them. He will be much different. The servant of God will also be very, very high and different. Look at verse 13. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now, when you think of the book of Isaiah and you hear high and lifted up or exalted, what, do you, what should you immediately think of? I hope you're thinking of Isaiah chapter 6. We all know this text when we hear it. Maybe you don't know the number, but you know it when you hear it. And it reads this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And then a verse later, and one of these seraphim called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So the only one who is high and lifted up ever is God. Nobody else, right? No one gets to sit where he sits. Yet this servant is going to be that high, as high as God is. Isn't that shocking? Far above all rulers, all authorities, all people, he will be lifted up. Look at verse 14. And this is what's shocking. As many as were astonished at you. Uh, I was reading some commentaries on this. This word could also be translated appalled. Your, your Bible might have the word appalled or horrified or stunned. So he's going to be so high and lifted up. And then it's, when you see him, you're going to be shocked. You're going to, whoa. Well, what's so shocking about this? Messiah, about, about Jesus here. What's so shocking? Look at verse 14. This is why it's so shocking. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Do you know what that's referring to? It's the cross, right? When you look, when they would see Jesus, he would say, here's your Messiah. And they would see this bloody, naked piece of meat hanging on a piece of wood. That's the Messiah? It didn't look like a person. It looks like a, like a, it's a bloody piece of animal, right? That's what's shocking. It's, he's going to be high, but he's going to be brutally beaten and spit upon and slaughtered, right? That's what's shocking. Notice also what is shocking in verse 15. So shall he sprinkle many nations. So the same amount of shock is going to be found in his, his, the horror of his death, but also what happens after. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. He shall sprinkle many nations. The word translated sprinkle can also refer to scattering. So when you sprinkle, you scatter it, right? So a lot of commentators think this has to do with the idea that there will be great astonishment. There will be a scattering of people. There will be astonishment because of the power of this Christ, of this Messiah. So much so that even kings and nations will be speechless. Now, how often are politicians quiet? Just FYI, they're not, right? They've always got, they're always talking. they got an opinion. Hey, be quiet. Listen to me. I'm, I'm governor. Be quiet. Or I'm president. Be quiet. 
this king will make every king shut their mouth. Isn't that stunning? He's going to be so marred and then lifted that every ruler, take the most wicked ruler you can think of, mouth closed, right? Stunned, shocked because of his power, right? How many politicians act like this way? They don't. But at the Messiah's coming in a way, when, when he's lifted up, there will be there will be silence. There will be no talking. I want to read for you uh, Psalm chapter 2. Not the whole thing. But Psalm chapter 2 is probably one of my favorite psalms about the triumph of Jesus Christ as the king. I want to read it for you. It says this. Just think of how relevant the Bible is to your life. This would be a helpful one to, to think of daily. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, or Christ, saying, let us burst their bonds apart, cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. They will speak to him in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You, the Messiah, shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So what are the kings of the earth to the Messiah? You ever break a pot in the ground? I have a three-year-old, so things break all the time. How helpless a little cup is or a little pot is. When Jesus looks at these wicked kings, he can just shatter, right? Psalm 110 is, is a similar psalm, if you read it, that he is, he is the king. The enemies are made as footstool. He will rule in the midst of his enemies. So Jesus Christ, friends, is the Lord of all people, all worldviews, all governments, all truth. He is the high king of heaven. Uh, a man named Abraham Kuyper once said this, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. So Jesus looks at everything on earth, every little square of existence, every little molecule, every little star, every little blade of grass. And what does he look at it and say? It's mine. Every ruler, everything is Christ. Therefore, we must call people to repentance to this powerful Savior and warn them of the coming judgment. Right? Jesus Christ is merciful. He is gracious. But he will destroy. Right? He will dash to pieces. So what is the command? Repent now. Run from your sin. Hate your sin. Run to Christ. And he is merciful to save any who surrender to the king. Right? He's merciful. But that mercy will last forever. So we must remember that Jesus is merciful and he is also this righteous king. But look, look what is shocking about this passage. In Isaiah 33, we see this. We see this. Wow, this, the Christ is going to be so high he could just dash anybody to pieces right and this is what's interesting is how does the messiah how does he go from being high being marred and then being high again what must happen because that, that's what happened right jesus was in heaven he came and he went back how does that have to happen that's what we're here to talk about today the only way to get to the crown is to the cross right the cradle the cross and the crown First the cross, then the crown. First suffering, and then glory. That's what we're going to look at here in Isaiah 53. Look at verse 1. We're looking at the coming of Christ. Who has believed what he has heard from us? 
So the message of Jesus Christ is by its very nature offensive, is it not? It's astonishing. The Messiah will be rejected. And don't you find this to be the case when you're reading in the gospel of Matthew, Mark, or Luke, or John? You just, when Jesus comes, it's automatic. Yeah, we want you to heal us, but just get away after that. Leave us alone, right? Give us some food and then just scoot away. Scoot away. Don't tell us what to do, right? Just, he's, they don't believe who he is, right? Look at verse one again. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So the arm of the Lord, if you think of, uh, so you think of like figurative way, this is the God's way of saying uh, power, right? His, his right arm, his strong arm, right arm he used to, to hold a sword and slash. This, this is the image, right? So the arm of God refers to God's power, God's strength, meaning it's a reference to God himself, right? Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that Jesus is the power and the wisdom of God. Why is that? Because Jesus Christ is God. He's not God-like. He's not pretty close. He's God. He's the power of God because he is God, right? And that's the message that's rejected is that the Messiah is actually God. Hence our role to proclaim the message. Man's greatest problem, if you look at verse chapter, if, if you look at verse one here, who has believed? Who has who's he been revealed to? What is man's greatest problem? It is not high taxes. It's not inflation. It is not voting. It is not your government. It is not sickness. Our greatest problem is unbelief. You can have all the riches in, riches in the world, all the things. If there is no faith in Christ, nothing matters. You go to judgment, right? So this is man's greatest problem. So we have man's greatest remedy, which is the Messiah. So we must call people to respond in repentance, right? To trust in this Christ, that they would believe in him. So Friends, as Christians, think of this. Many of your troubles in life, what are they because of? I would argue, not all, many, are because of unbelief. We worry about things that never happen. We fear things that we ought not fear. We are terrified. We are a small people. Financially, what might happen in the future, foreign rulers, governments, you name it. Name any issue. It's because we do not believe. We do not hope in this power of God who is this Jesus Christ rules over everything. Why am I so scared? So friends, why, why do you worry? Ask your soul. So why do you worry so much? Hope in God. Isn't that like the charge of the Christian? If God's been revealed to your heart, believe in the word of Christ. Cast your thoughts to the arm of the Lord and the person of Christ and you shall have no fears in the world. Most of your sorrows in the world because of things you worry about never actually happen. Or when they do happen, we need to trust the Lord, do we not? Look at verse 2. Here's the reason for why the Messiah is rejected. Because he comes as a man. Look at this. Verse 2. He grew up before him like a young plant. Um, how do plants grow? Anybody want to take a guess? Nothing right home about, is it? It's pretty boring, right? The grass is growing. Cool. Small, right? It's... It's nothing to look at. It's boring. It's nothing important, really. Jesus, as man, had a very meager life, a regular life. Matthew 13, 30, uh, 13 55, they ask about Jesus. Isn't this the carpenter's son? So Jesus wasn't this rich ruler on earth, right? He wasn't this king or commander. He was just, yeah, his dad owns the shop down Main Street. We know who he is, Right? His life was not envied by anybody who's a regular person, probably below middle class, right? Just average. 
He simply grew up like we all do over a, a span of about 30 years. Luke chapter 3, verse 23 says Jesus was about 30 when he began his ministry. So about 30 years, right? Just a regular life, nothing flashy. Like a root out of dry ground in verse 2. So namely, the unimportance of a plant. So if you were to walk into a desert and you see a little, a little uh, blade of grass sprout in the desert, what are you going to think? Man, I'm dying a day, right? It's not going to like, you're not going to be hearkened to be like, cool grass. You're going to think, it's, it's going to die, right? Just grass in a desert, right? Jesus was born into nothing, right? He was born into a wasteland, the dry ground of the earth in a little town of Bethlehem. He was from a backwater town called Nazareth that we don't even know really where it was because it was so small, right? Not in a big hospital, but in a little tiny feeding trough in a manger, right? Remember who this is. He's the one that kings will shut their mouths at. We're thinking, he's born in a feeding trough in Oric, Missouri. Really? Not like, not like New York, right? Why, why not New York? Why not LA, right? It's, it's, a, it's stunning. I'm from a town called, uh, I went to high school in a town called Crab Orchard. Want how big it is? Put your pinky on the map. That's about how big it is, right? It's called Crab Orchard, crying out loud. Jesus born into nothing, right? Consider where he was beforehand. He was in heaven. Jesus descended and took upon himself a human body, a second nature, right? He was truly God, and when he came to the earth, he was truly man. He became what he was not, which is a person, a creature, right? While never ceasing to be God, he was truly man and truly God. And in his coming, his deity is veiled so much so that Jesus looked like a regular person, did he not? He had to eat, he had to sleep, he grew, he learned, he had to rest, work, right? And in humility, he became a little tiny baby in Mary's womb, right? Just, I mean, small, right? Tiny. A helpless infant, he became a clumsy toddler. He grew into a child, he became a learning teenager, he became a, a tradesman. Like Jesus' life was nothing flashy, it was just a regular. That's the Christ? Why is he in the, in the military just slaughtering Romans, right? It's just, it's unbelievable, right? And all of his life was sinless. This should remind us that the things that Jesus did not have should be encouraging. We should remind us of how we should think of the world's treasures. Jesus had none of them. He had no possessions. He had no fame. He had no wealth. And yet at the same time, is he not worthy of all our attention? Isn't it peculiar? He had nothing. Didn't have a place to lay his head. Didn't own anything, really. Didn't have any wealth. And yet he's, he, we want him, right? What is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. We should think more of the things of the earth in a proper way the way that Jesus had them and thought of them. To have, to have faith in Christ is to have an inheritance waiting for you, written in your name, separated only by time. Do you guys know what dust bunnies are? I sneeze when I see them. Just, even just the father makes me want to sneeze. Uh, compared to Christ, your biggest retirement, the biggest boat, most money, biggest house, Best whatever. Compared to Christ, it's just, it's a dust bunny. Why do we run for it? Jesus didn't have any of it. We must treasure Christ. Why spend such time? Uh, Psalm 63.3 says, Because your steadfast love is better than life. Friends, knowing Christ truly is better than life. 
Next, we'll look at the humiliation or the humility of Christ in verse 2. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus looked like a regular Jewish man, right? He would be forgotten in a sea of faces. Um, when you go to Walmart or to the restaurant or drive on the road, you see people all the time. You go home and you forget every single one of them, except the guy that cut you off, right? Or the guy that took your, the last bag of chips. Like, that's the only person you remember. Everyone else, you just forget, right? You forget everyone you see. That's how Jesus was. He wasn't a person you would think, hey, I saw this guy today. Just, I guess he was there. I don't remember him seeing him, right? There's nothing beautiful about him, nothing attractive we should think, oh, he had no physical advantages, nothing outwardly that would draw our attention to him. Friends, I hope you hear that this is just, this is stunning. This is sh- simply astounding. Jesus who dwells in what Paul says, unapproachable light. He's the holy, holy, holy Lord of glory, right? And when he comes to the earth, we're kind of like, which one was he again? Right? It's humbling. A man named, a man named Gregory of Nazianzus from the 4th century. I had to read it in seminary. This is a good book. And he writes this. He was exiled to Egypt in his birth, right? Yet he banished the Egyptians. He hungered, yet fed thousands. He was tired, yet he is our rest. He pays taxes, yet he is the emperor over those who take taxes. He prays, yet he hears prayer. He weeps, yet he puts an end to all weeping. He surrenders his life, yet he has the power to take it up. As a lamb, he is dumb, yet he is the word of God. Isn't that shocking? Stunning. There's no magic that we should desire him. The one who angels came and look at, right? They cover their eyes. We look him on earth, we just think, I've seen better. Is that not humbling? This is the glory of Christ. And think about his matchless love for you, that he would humble himself to such a low estate for sinners such as you and I. There's nothing about us that would gather his gaze. And he humbled himself for you. He humbled that far for you. He veiled his deity that you would behold his glory in heaven. He promised an eternity of beholding and seeing his glory. Why would you not humble yourself? That's why the command to come to Christ is to humble yourself. Look to Christ in faith. Don't look to yourself. Look to Christ in faith. He shared in our humanity that we would share in his heaven. Again, how marvelous. We're just saying it. How wonderful is his love for you. So friends, would you, would you know God more? Do you have a hope to hear from God daily? Do you desire to know who he is? When we desire to hear from friends, what do we do? I'll just give them a call, right? When you desire to hear from your loved ones, what do you do? You send them a text, right? But not with God. Isn't it kind that he didn't say, yeah, come find me. What did he do? He came down to you. The command is not come up to me. The command is I will come to you because we cannot reach him. In our sinfulness, we cannot approach him. In his heaven, we cannot reach him. In his perfect standard, we cannot meet him. But he descended. So therefore, how do we have any relationship with God? Do you have to obey you have to go to church a certain amount of times to know God, to, to spend time with Him? Do you have to know Him, to know who God is? Do you have to give a certain amount of money? What do you have to do? Paul writes this in Galatians chapter 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, 
to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive adoption as sons. The only way you stand right with God now is the same way you will forever. It is not through obedience. It is not through law keeping. You cannot keep law enough. We cannot pray enough. We cannot feel bad for our sins enough. I hope you feel helpless. That's the point. Jesus descended to bring you to God. To redeem those who are under the curse of the law. So by Jesus' perfect life is credited to sinners. Not our life of building credit of righteousness, but his life credited to us by faith. We know as in a song, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. It's not the works that I do, it's the life that he lived, right? That's how, that's how we daily know God. And even now, today, the way we receive from God is by his word. We're dependent even upon his word to speak to us. So friends, do you visit this God often who condescended to visit you? Jesus Christ drew so near to you that you could touch him on the earth. What would keep you from knowing this God in your private time and enjoying him more? What is better than beholding the glory of God in his word? I once heard a pastor say that when you hear like a stinging quote, you should either say amen or ouch. This would be a good one. Thomas Watson said this, Christ went more willingly to the cross than we do to the throne of grace. Either amen or ouch in that one. It's a big ouch. So friends, would you commune with God in prayer more, with the word more, and gatherings more with God's people and faithful evangelism? He so sought us. Why would we not fiercely seek him? He's freely offered. Why would you not seek him? May we be encouraged to seek him as he sought us. Number three, the rejection of Christ. Look at verse three. The main description of Jesus' life could be rejected. John chapter one Verse 11 says this, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. He was despised, we read in verse 3, rejected by men. Despised means hated, right? Loathed, abhorred. He was not given open arms. Instead, he was shoved, right? Leave us alone. Get, right? The things you say to a stray dog, get, get out of here, right? He was rejected. Mark chapter 3 says he wasn't even welcome in his own town, so much so that his own family thought that he was insane. Jesus, you're nuts. Even his own family rejected him. Upon his death, we see on the cross, he's continually being despised. Is he not on the cross? Rejected even more. Get off the cross, Jesus. How powerful, right? He's mocking him even still. He was betrayed, falsely accused, slandered, mocked, shamed, all this publicly in front of everyone, for everyone to see. He was forsaken by his friends at his arrest. He was left alone at his death. Verse 3 rightly calls him a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. The life of Jesus was one of seemingly constant sorrow. Again, born in a manger. Mark chapter 3 says he was grieved at unbelief. John 11 says he wept. Matthew 26, he was troubled to the point of death, even death on a cross in his soul. He was troubled. In Luke 23, he was under the Father's judgment on the cross, and he was still mocked. John 19, he was, he was buried in a borrowed tomb. I mean, how much more sorrowful? You can't even afford your own death, and you're dead. Sorrowful life. His life was sorrowful, full of grief and woe, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Maybe you know the song, Man of Sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. 
ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And how peculiar is it that though he was a man of sorrows, we love him. I want to identify with him. And I want this wealthy people. I want to identify with this man. Isn't that stunning? He's beautiful in his person. We just sang it today. He had no tears for his own griefs, but sweat drops of blood for mine. His sorrow and grief, his despising and rejection, the hiding of faces that he suffered, was not because of anything necessary that was in him. Ultimately, under God's judgment, he was suffered these things because of my sins. His life was was heavy with borrowed grief, namely mine. He bore my sins. My sins caused him grief. But thanks be to God that he has not left us in that state. That the man of sorrows, through him, I would inherit eternal joy. Isn't that simply just stunning? Jesus was made sorrowful so that he would wipe away every tear from my eye one day. He was grieved that one day I would step into a place of forgetfulness of grief. So Christians, therefore, we should never be surprised of a life that is full of sorrows. We are often surprised when bad things happen, aren't we? We're like, man, why is that happening? It's a busted, sinful world. It's so peculiar that things go wrong. We shouldn't be surprised. If our Savior was a man of sorrows, we should expect nothing less. Jesus was rejected by men. We should not express embracement from the world. We should not expect to have a flowery bed of ease, as the hymn says. How much more should we consider his cross in light of our small crosses? Yes, we have pain. Yes, we have suffering. Yes, we have real problems. I'm not neglecting that. However, compared to his cross, I have such a tiny burden to bear. There's no suffering like the suffering of Christ. We read today in Sunday school, as a matter of fact, a servant is not greater than his master. We should expect the same. And just like in Christ, we, we should see the hidden love of God mixed in sorrows. Charles Spurgeon said that when you cannot trace his hand, you can trust his heart. He's a man of sorrows for sinners like us. So friends, delight that you share in the sufferings of Christ. When you're rejected, rejoice. <laughs> because of his powerful resurrection from the dead, I can know that one day he will remove all my sorrow, all my grief, all my pain, all my suffering, all my sins, all the woes from my heart and my body and my life. For eternity, they will be gone and cast away into the empty tomb. Do you love this man of sorrows? Who else would you want to identify with? The God who sent his son to the cross for my good will always send crosses to me for my good. He will never strike me in anger if I'm a believer, only in love. So we must ask ourselves this. Do you, do you fear pain in life? Christ endured pain. Do you have sorrow? He can carry you. Do you have loss? He is sufficient. Do you have sin? Christ can bear it. Friends, this is our Christ. The glory of Christ in his condescension for our exaltation is amazing. His life was righteous for those who are unrighteous. And he was triumphant on the third day for us, a man of sorrows 
for us. I want to read to you a closing hymn. Why should I complain of want or distress, temptation or pain? He told me no less. The heirs of salvation I know from his word through much tribulation must follow their Lord. Since all that I meet shall work for my good, the bitter is sweet, the medicine food. Though painful at present, twill cease before long. And then, oh, how pleasant the conqueror's song. Here is the song. Begone unbelief, the Savior is here. Begone unbelief, the Savior is here. Let's pray.